Welcome to the Metaphoricist Magazine podcast, your home for beautifully made speculative fiction. The magazine is edited by B. Morris Allen, and I'm your host, Matt Gomez. This week's story is Astrid Underwater by J.J. Eskelin. J.J. Eskelin is a writer of speculative fiction, currently living with her family on the central coast of California. She has lived in Finland, England, and the United States, and is a dual Finnish and American citizen. Nature and place are important to her, and no matter where she is, she tries to escape with her giant dog to commune with wilderness on a weekly basis. Find her online at jjesklin.com. That's j-j-e-s-k-e-l-i-n.com. Let's jump in. The day Sigun lost her son in the water, it was unusually warm, even for August. She had driven with him up the Olympic Peninsula to a park just over the bridge, on the western shore of Killasut Island. The little island had been created some 50 years before, when a ship canal was dredged through a backwater marsh, severing the land from the Olympic Peninsula. Now, a sandbar, bleached and desolate, edged the deep canal. The sandbar was littered with empty shells and strewn with bone-white driftwood tumbled smooth by water. In between the sandbar and the rocky shore of the little island, tidal rivers wove through the sand and rock. Beneath their sparkling waters, every surface was generously carpeted with life. The rocks were sharp with oysters, dressed with purple sea anemones, slippery with green and brown algae. Sigun, tall and strong, carried Eric easily as she waded through the seawater streams, stepping gingerly over the life-encrusted rocks, out towards the sandbar. Once there, Eric set about busily reorganizing the driftwood into a fort. A constant monologue accompanied his work, demanding no response. She was lucky in this, that he could play alone. Eric had been terrified of the water all summer. Sigun had not been able to get him to even dip his beautiful pink toes into the sea. Swimming lessons had been a complete disaster. Eric had taken a particular dislike to the last swim instructor who had attempted to force him into the pool. Before Sigun could intervene, Eric had started screaming, I hate her! I hate her! I hate her! His cry had echoed like a curse in the vaulted chamber above the indoor pool. Sigun had been ready to concede defeat when the director of the aquatic center himself had emerged from the water. While the swim instructors had been barely out of childhood, The director was a man with closely cut hair and a stiff beard of shining silver. He was short, smaller than Sigun, but his presence was commanding. He was perfectly formed, every muscle outlined by his black shorty wetsuit. The skin of his exposed arms and legs was smooth bronze, his face ageless. A trident would not have looked out of place in his hand, Sigun had thought, amused at the image. Come, Eric, the director Mr. Medahinen had ordered in a low, even voice. He was devoid of the false cheer and friendliness that often seem a prerequisite for working with small children. Yet Eric had not hesitated. He had taken the man's cold hand and stepped willingly into the water at last. Sigun had never been afraid of the water. She was an excellent swimmer and an even better sailor, having grown up sailing her father's boats. She loved the water, but she understood the danger of it the vigilance and respect it commanded. So, even if she had good reason to believe Eric would not touch the water, she did not intend to close her eyes while he played so close to the lapping waves of the deep canal. 
as she watched Eric, her back rested against the driftwood log, warm from the sunshine. Sigun slipped her feet out of her sandals and anchored them in the coarse sand. Eric had been awake in the night again, and Sigun was deeply tired. Keeping her eyes open against the onslaught of the sun and sparkling water was unbearably painful. Suddenly, Sigun was jolted awake. A cloud had eclipsed the sun. The rocks were gray and cold, and the trees above the shoreline were dark emerald, almost black. She was shivering. Eric? She called out, leaping up. Eric? She screamed, running around the piles of pale dead wood, raking the black water with her eyes, her stomach accelerating through the bottom of her feet. Eric? There was no answer. Even in the summer, the Salish Sea is deadly cold. It takes only a few seconds for a child to drown. Shame and guilt broke into a torrent beneath her terror. The loss of another child would be unpardonable, unbearable. She wanted to tear her heart out from her body. Too much time had passed, but Sigun ruthlessly repressed her panic. If she was to have any chance of saving him, she had to keep her head. She bounded out into the water, the sharp shells cutting her feet, until she felt the seabed drop into the deep icy canal. The surface of the sea was unforgivably still. The world was colorless. The trees were black against the gray sky. Then, Sigun heard splashing behind her, and Eric's laughter. She turned and scooped him up into her arms, every dear, precious inch of him soaking wet. Sigun crushed his cold, damp body against her racing heart. She was filled with a mixture of relief, joy, and rage, so overwhelming she was speechless. She felt sick. Eric, where were you? She whispered hoarsely, holding him tightly against her breast as she carried him back to the barren sandbar, over the slippery stones and the rocks sheltering spiny assemblies of black-purple sea urchins, until he struggled to wriggle free of her arms. She was shaking as she set him down on the bone-dry rocks beside her backpack. You know not to go into the water alone! I wasn't alone, he answered unconcerned, but his lips were blue. She dug into the backpack, pulling out the extra set of clothing she always carried for him. She helped him dress and handed him a tart green apple, which he happily accepted. He bit into the crisp fruit, the juice running down his sea-damp chin. If you can't see me, I can't see you. Sigun didn't want to make him afraid again, and she was careful not to sound as terrified and angry as she felt. It is good to be in the water, but you must have someone in with you. Sigun was strapping her bleeding feet back into her sandals and packing up their things. She lifted Eric up and, tucking him under her arm, forded the tidal rivers back to the shore. Their car was parked, dusty and alone, on the gravel underneath the long arms of a giant madrona tree, whose red bark had peeled back to reveal smooth wood that glistened like tanned, wet skin. Sigun settled Eric into his car seat, fastening the harness. I wasn't alone. He handed Sigun the core of the apple. She was with me. Who was with you, Eric? Sigun asked as she fastened her seatbelt, glancing up at his reflection in the rearview mirror. The mermaid, he said. Sigun pulled away from the park and drove quickly up the gravel road and over the bridge. She was still fighting the afterburn of terror, and in its place shame and anger were settling into her body. She, Lars Havagrim's daughter, had almost lost her child in the water. It was unforgivable. Did the mermaid have a tail? 
Sigan's heart rate was returning to normal. Maybe Eric had seen a harbor seal or some other creature swimming below the water and had been curious, as Sigun would have been. Sigun was a marine biologist after all, or at least she had been one. No, Eric laughed as if her question had been ridiculous. Well, what did they look like then? Eric was kicking his legs into the seat in front of him. Like you, he said. Her eyes were green but brighter. Her hair was long but darker. Her teeth were whiter. He had his hand in his mouth, feeling his own teeth. And sharper. She glanced at him quickly in the rearview mirror to see if he was as disturbed as she was by his imagined encounter, and was struck as she was every now and then by how impossibly dear he was to her. He looked healthy and unconcerned, as if he had not just been pulled, blue-lipped out of the cold sea. You know her, Mama. It was Astrid, Eric said. His angelic brow furrowed in frustration, his foot kicking the back of the seat with renewed vigor. She found me. Astrid? Sigan jerked the car back into her lane just in time. A truck sailed past on her left, its honking horn distorted by the speed of their near collision. It took all of Sigun's concentration then to drive home safely. Astrid, Eric's twin sister. Astrid, who had lived only eight days. Astrid, who had been sedated, wrapped in tubes and placed in a glass box, floors above Sigun's ravaged body. Astrid, who had drowned not in the water, but in the air. Unlike Eric, who had been born looking like a shriveled elf, skinny and jaundiced, a tiny, wizened old man with pointy ears and a piercing scream, Astrid had been born beautiful and healthy-looking. But she had been born second, pulled, violently, feet first, out of Sigun, unwilling and unready. Her lungs had never made the transition from the liquid world of Sigun's womb. The sky was darkening, and little drops of rain began to hit the windshield as she drove over the bridge onto the large island where they lived. She wound her way carefully down to the southern tip of it, the roads dark and narrow, lined with towering trees. It had begun to rain in earnest, and it was hours before Tom would be home from the city. When Tom did come home, he was soaking wet, having biked back from the ferry in the worst of the downpour. He was exhausted, but the shadows under his eyes did not diminish his good looks. If anything, Tom was growing more handsome. Sigun almost resented it, that his beauty was increasing as she felt hers to be fading. Her hand moved involuntarily to the silver streak that ran through her dark red hair. It had seemed to appear suddenly, the day she finally came home from the hospital without Astrid. Motherhood had changed the geography of her body inside and out like an earthquake, a volcanic eruption. The cost of it had fallen on her physically, heavily. Sigun, enveloped in grief, had experienced so little the joy of it. She had once been sure of Tom's desire, but now she was no longer confident it was under her sway at all, although the truth was, for some time she had not cared. Sigun felt much less like a siren than a fury. It was only at the beginning of the summer that she had finally weaned Eric. She had been warned she might suffer a sort of withdrawal. Her body had been a factory of calming hormones. Perhaps that was why she felt a storm building inside her, a tumult swirling in her blood. Perhaps that was why Astrid's apparition felt so unsettling, 
a sudden burst of turbulence when she was already in the middle of a storm. Later that night, as Sigun and Tom lay in bed together, he asked her about her day. It was fine. We drove to Killasuit Island. Did you see anything interesting? Well, Eric thought he saw a mermaid. Tom laughed. I shouldn't have taken him to the old curiosity shop. The shop was on the wharf near where the ferry left the city for the big island where they lived. Among its curiosities had been a mermaid, a taxidermist's chimera, fish, and monkey, its sharp little teeth bared in fury at the customers below. It had seemed obscene, even in Sigun's childhood. Sigun rolled onto her back, hesitating. But the strangest thing was, Eric called the mermaid Astrid. Tom still beside her. Astrid? Do you and Eric talk about Astrid? No, never. Do you? Of course not. But Eric is like a little sponge. He must have heard us mention her name. She turned away from him, onto her side, and he curled around her. She couldn't bring herself to share how close she had come to losing Eric, the terror and shame of it. Not yet. Sigun could feel his body settle as he fell quickly into a deep sleep, the privilege of the exhausted and the innocent. Eventually, and with great effort, she followed him into oblivion. The next morning, Sigun set about with renewed determination to get Eric swimming lessons with the director of the aquatic center. If nothing else, she could make sure Eric learned to swim. He doesn't give lessons anymore, the scheduler at the aquatic center said, sounding bored. Despite Mr. Medahinen's flat affect and lack of good cheer, which some parents found disturbing, he had a reputation on the island for being able to teach the children to swim in a fraction of the time of other instructors. After one of his students had gone on to compete in the Olympics, the clamor of families wanting to work with him had become an annoyance, and he had stopped teaching altogether. Would you please ask him to consider it? Astrid persisted. He is the only person who has been able to lure Eric into the water. To the obvious surprise of the Aquatic Center's scheduler, her request was granted, and on the following Tuesday, Sigun and Eric set out for his first lesson. As they stood at the rim of the pool waiting, Eric held her hand, leaning hesitantly towards the water. Are you ready, Eric? said a gruff voice from the pool. Sigun turned and met the gaze of the director standing in the water. His hair was glowing metallic in the light that filtered down from the skylights in the high cathedral ceiling. His eyes glinted like pale green sea glass in his copper face. Good morning, Mr. Medahinen. Sigun was carefully to politely keep her eyes on his face, above the collar of his skin-tight neoprene suit. He nodded tersely and held out his hand past her, unsmiling to Eric. Come, Eric, Mr. Medahinen said. Once again, the small boy took the man's hand and jumped into the water. When Mr. Medahinen brought Eric back to the steps of the pool at the end of the lesson, he cast an assessing glance up at Sigun. He stepped out of the pool after Eric, water dripping off his body. We can continue lessons for now. Mr. Medahinen didn't seem pleased or displeased. Sigun felt relieved, as if they had passed some sort of test. Thank you. This is important to us. Sigun blushed. She sounded overly earnest even to herself. But Mr. Medahinen had already turned away and quickly disappeared, past the showers and the nurse's station, into the bowels of the swimming hall. 
The next morning, Sigun and Eric took the ferry across to the city to visit her father, Lars, and her grandmother, Tuliki, her mother's mother, who had helped raise her. The plan was for Sigun to accompany her grandmother to a long-anticipated art exhibition, while her father and Eric walked to the Ballard Locks to ogle ships and boats passing up and down between Lake Washington and the Salish Sea. Sigun drove first to Tuliki's little yellow house, northeast of Green Lake. A giant birch tree dominated her front yard, towering over the house. This was Tuliki's yard tree, and following the old customs, she gave it offerings. Coffee, milk, vodka, and occasionally, Sigun suspected, blood. Most people had forgotten such traditions, but not Tuliki, who had been raised by her own grandmother. After Tuliki was orphaned by the Winter War, she and her grandmother had been sent from Finland to live with cousins north of Seattle. They had shared a little bed in a closet, more indentured servants than family, until Tuliki had saved enough money for their escape. Even in Sigun's childhood, the yard tree had been a massive, flourishing thing, a testament to Tuliki's archaic superstitions. Sigun had said as much to her father one day, as he had collected her from her grandmother's house. She had been looking back at the tree, so tall she could not see the top of it from the pickup's window. It's not your grandmother's witchcraft that makes the tree grow, her father had growled at Sigun, irritated. It's her damned sewer line. Her father's angry dismissal had surprised her. Over time, Sigun had learned to be careful not to share Tuliki's little eccentricities with him. Sigun glanced up now at the tree as she walked beneath the green canopy and up the uneven stone steps to her grandmother's red door. Tuliki popped, grinning, from the front door before Sigun's knuckles reached the red-painted wood. As Sigun helped her grandmother settle into the car with her packages, a magnificent smell of cardamom and butter emerged from her parcels. She had brought a basket of pastries, of course. She never visited Sigun's father without them. They were her special tithing, a penance for her daughter's desertion of Lars when Sigun was just a baby. Lars was waiting outside when they pulled up to Havagrim's shipyard. The shipyard had been founded a hundred years before by Lars's grandfather, Torsten Havagrim a master shipwright, and his younger brother who had come over from Norway together. The original sign for Havagrim's shipyard still dominated the front face of the office, carefully maintained and restored, like the old wooden boats within. On the sign, a wizened seal balanced the sailboat on its right front flipper. Eric, as was his habit, greeted the seal happily, and it grinned back at him with a knowing twinkle in its eye. The habitual glower of her father's weathered face broke into a smile as he took Eric's tiny hand. Lars was just over six and a half feet tall, and he loomed over little Eric and tiny Tuliki like a giant. His tousled, white-blonde hair was a tangled beneath his old fisherman's cap, and his clothes and boots were dusty from work. After exchanging greetings, Lars and Eric set off eagerly for the locks, and Sigun and Tuliki turned east toward the museum. The museum was newly built, a monument to the ideals of rational Scandinavian modernity. As they entered the white curving walls, Tuliki said, Do you remember when I read that children's version of the Kalevala to you? The exhibition was of a Finnish painter, Axeli Galen Kalela, who was famous for his depictions of scenes from the epic poem. The Kalevala was the national epic of Finland, 
and it had been composed from bits of songs and spells collected throughout Finland some 200 years before. Sigun vaguely remembered the strange tales, wizards battling through song, women forged from metal, jawbones turned into harps. Of course, Sigun assured her, but Tuliki was already moving briskly between the paintings, pointing out this and cooing over that. Sigun trailed in her wake, happy to follow her irregular course as Tuliki paused to examine each work. Sigun liked the best Galen Kalela's later paintings, finished after the death of his daughter, with their bold black lines and anguished figures. Her favorite was his depiction of the witch woman, Lohi, as a monster with the body and wings of an eagle, vicious talons and braided red hair, hovering above a long ship, sharp with spears. They had seen almost everything, and Tuliki had finally begun to slow her pace when she sailed right past the large triptych, three canvases enclosed in a massive, intricately carved and gilded frame. Sigun, curious, stopped to take a closer look. The object of the paintings was a young woman, pale and passive, naked in the last two panes. In the central painting, she was half in the water, twisting away from a man with a long white beard who was reaching out from a wooden fishing dory with grasping hands. A bony hand gripped Sigun's arm, startling her. Do you know this story? Tuliki said, not looking at Sigun, but at the painting with narrowed eyes. It's the story of Aino, from the Kalevala. Her brother bargains her way to Vainamoinen, the old wizard, and her mother happily agrees to give her away in exchange for her son's life. Aino escapes by drowning herself and turning into a fish. Where was the anger on Aino's face? Sigun felt it for her. The girl in the painting was a hairless creature, pale and innocent and as inured to loss as a wooden Madonna in a medieval church. The model in this version is the painter Axeli Galen Kalela's own wife. A little bloodless, don't you think? Tuliki cackled as she patted Sigun's arm. It makes you wonder, doesn't it? Shall we go outside to wait for the boys? Sigun needed fresh air. She was already moving toward the door. Of course. Tuliki assented and took Sigun's arm, patting it again. Sigun had at least a dozen inches of height on her grandmother, and she checked her stride carefully to match Tuliki's as they moved down the ramp into the soaring entrance of the museum. As they reached the towering entrance hall, the darkened glass doors parted to reveal her father, a dusty giant, out of place amidst the sparkling glass and high white walls of the modern museum. He held Eric in the crook of his arm, a beaming cherub riding on a thundercloud. Just on time, Lars boomed, pleased as always by punctuality, his fearsome face breaking into a smile of large white teeth. Their little procession stopped at the shipyard's messy office. Tuliki conjured her cardamom rolls from beneath the linen tea towel. A silent contentment fell over them, amidst the bliss of butter, sugar, cardamom, and coffee, until Eric, with crumbs on his face, demanded they get to work on the boats. It was the end of the summer, and the shipyard was starting to fill up again. Boats were straggling back in from spending their summers in the archipelago, or from traveling up north to the raucous shores of the Canadian coast, where they had wandered past waterfalls crashing into the sea, orcas breaching the surface of hidden bays, waves lapping fondly on their wooden hulls. 
Havagrims dealt only with the upkeep and restoration of wooden boats. These boats, costly and difficult to maintain, were the obsessions of their owners. They sounded different in the water, more magical, more alive. Now they were home to be coddled over the winter at great expense. Her father was working on a boat that had not been on the water that summer, nor for several years by the look of it. Has this boat just been purchased? Sigun asked, running her hand over the wood with its flaking paint. Nope. It's been with the same family since the beginning. But now someone finally has the money to restore it. Her father sounded pleased. He was carefully scraping off the peeling paint. It will take some work to make it seaworthy again. He turned to Sigun, a sly look on his face. Do you know who built this boat? She did. Even without recognizing the lines of the elegant little sloop, she would have known by the sparkle in her father's eye. Grandpa Torsten. Sigun smiled back at her father. Otherwise, I wouldn't have taken it on, but I know I can get this one back out on the water. He patted the wood fondly. When's the last time you were out on a boat? Lars did not look at Sigun, his gaze still fastened on his work. Oh, I don't know. It's hard to find the time. After college, Sigun had chosen to work on a humble research vessel rather than continue to graduate school. She hated desks. She had planned to work on that ship right up to giving birth, had dreamed of returning to it with the baby strapped to her back, Carrying the twins and then the difficulty of keeping either of them alive had put an end to those fancies. I had a friend once, her father was saying. Used to fish with me in the summers. Excellent fisherman, even better card player. He was good with numbers. One day he fell in love with a girl from Magnolia. Her father waved his hand derisively toward the south, where a hill reared up, its western sea-facing side graced with dignified houses. He went to college, got a degree, fished every summer to pay for it, and then he got a job at the bank downtown, the one in the Black Tower. He was good at it, too, but he gave up fishing. He couldn't find the time to be on the water. Lars was scraping something off the hull of the boat now, his face hidden. Sigun barely managed to stifle a sigh. Her father's stories had a way of irritating her. I'm getting to the point, girl, he said tersely. The point is, he loved the water, and he gave it up. He didn't fight for it, and he was miserable. Then one day, something went wrong down at the bank, and he shot himself. Sigun dropped the piece of wood she was holding. Tad! She turned, looking for Eric, and spotted him up in a wooden sloop on wheels a few boats back. Not close enough to hear, he was busy talking to Tuliki, who was smiling up at him from the solid ground. And his wife, she was devastated. She moved up to Alaska. Lars paused to look at Sigun from under his bushy, white-gold brows. The point is, she really did love him after all. He didn't need to be slaving away in that dark tower for her. He should have found a way to stay on the water, to stay alive. Damned idiot. He turned back to his work. Picking up a can, he began to paint something over the scraped wood. Got to get your feet off the land, girl. I can see it in your face. I was just on the ferry, wasn't I? Her father let out a derisive scoff. Sigun had picked up a little chisel and was testing its sharpness with her finger. What is it? Lars said, 
straightening up to his full height and looking down at Sigun with a concerned glower. Nothing, really. Eric thought he saw a mermaid under the water near Killisut Island, and he talks about her still. Her father made another dismissive snort and returned to his work. Well, when you were about his age, you declared you were going to marry a harbor seal. He let out a rumble of laughter. I don't remember that. Well, you did. You used to speak to him over the edge of the boat. He was very friendly. A big fellow. I told him he had to wait at least another 25 years. Her father chuckled. A deep, rough, almost uncomfortable sound. Children will imagine all sorts of things, after all. And it was a comfort to have her father dismiss her worries. When it was time to catch the ferry home, Sigun drove Tuliki back to her little yellow house. She could see the birch tree long before they turned onto her grandmother's street. Sigun thought of mentioning the mermaid to Tuliki, but she hesitated, saying instead, I think Eric's swim instructor has a Finnish name. Tuliki turned to her, curious. What is it? Medihinen. Medihinen? Tuliki rasped thoughtfully. It's a little unusual, but then when people immigrate... Anyway, it's a good name for a swimmer, she laughed. It would kind of mean a merman, you know. Although maybe that would be Vetehinen. Is that like a Naki? When Sigan was just a little girl, Tuliki had taught her a charm for protection against Naki. Something to say before entering the water. And the words came back quickly to her tongue. Naki mala mina vetein. It was a simple charm. Naki to the land, I to the water. She and Tuliki would say it, tossing a stone into the sea before touching the water, like politely knocking on a door before entering a room. Tuliki had always insisted, in her light-hearted way, on reversing this spell as they left the water, to avoid angering spirits. It had been a comforting ritual in Sigun's childhood summers. A Naki is a little nasty thing, like a Nixie. Tuliki was saying eagerly. Always after children. You can find those tales all over. Vettehinen is an older thing. My grandmother used to say they weren't good or evil, but sea folk trapped as the land began to rise when the weight of the glaciers lifted after the last ice age. As the land rose up, bays became lakes. Islands turned into peninsulas. Water was separated from the sea. No one likes to feel trapped. Still, one had to be careful with them, too, so that boats wouldn't capsize, so the fishing was good, so that women weren't lured into their wild arms. Tuliki brushed something invisible off her long skirt. So maybe Medahinen would be like a Vetahinen, but one that was never caught, or one that had escaped. She chuckled. Anyway, it could be a Finnish name. She cast a sideways glance at Sigun. Be careful. Don't be like your mother. Sigun felt as if she had been slapped. I'm not my mother. Sigun managed to keep her voice calm. Eric was in the car after all. We can't help who we are, Tuliki added casually as they reached her driveway, the little yellow house glowing beneath a towering birch tree. Think of Eric. It's practically all I do, retorted Sigun, her eyebrows drawn together in annoyance. 
On the ferry ride home, Sigun and Eric joined the tourists on the south side of the ferry's top deck, where they were gathered to take photographs with Mount Rainier looming over the city behind them. A live volcano and one of the most dangerous in the world. Its snow-covered dome was illuminated by the warm light of the setting sun. A white-haired giant's round sleeping head nestled in the green mountains. Someone on the deck yelled excitedly, Look! Killer whales! Eric's feet were on the railing high above the sea, and Sigun held her body pressed against him as he leaned back into her. She pointed out over his shoulder to where four fins were slicing through the water, moving fast northwards toward the archipelago. Four bodies breached the surface, dressed in dashing black and white. Not orca whales, but but Phocinoides dolly, Sigun thought. A shoal of dolls' porpoises flying through the water. Sigun felt the crazy urge to dive into the sound after them, but she kept her arms wrapped around Eric. Her hands curled tightly around the steel bars of the railing. Her father was right. She had been out of the water too long. That Friday, Eric had his last swimming lesson before the start of school. He slipped into the water as happily as a duck, pushing off the side of the pool and reaching out his arms to Mr. Medahinen, who waited for him in the water. When the lesson was over, Medahinen brought Eric back to the rim of the pool, where Sigun was waiting. He stopped by the stairs, half in and half out of the water. He was looking up from the pool, and yet he managed to have the air of a king granting an audience or a judge gazing down from his bench. When he finally spoke, he asked, Who is Astrid? Astrid, Sigun repeated, turning away to wrap a shivering Eric in his little hooded towel, emblazoned with fire trucks. It meant something to have her daughter's name on her lips. Sigun had learned early on not to speak of her. It made people uncomfortable. Her grief frightened people. They had worried about Eric, too but there was no reason now to hide her from Eric's ears. My daughter. Sigun was toweling Eric's hair. Eric's twin sister, who is dead. I see. Mr. Medahinen considered Sigun, not with pity or compassion exactly, and then turned to Eric. Good work today, Eric, he said finally. Thank you, Mr. Medahinen, Sigun replied carefully. For the lesson. Say thank you, Eric. Eric did, and they turned and left the man, still standing in the pool. Sigun waited until they were home, until after lunch, until Eric was busy building. Did you see Astrid today? Sigun finally asked casually. She was lying on the floor, looking up at the ceiling. No. He was concentrating on fitting two pieces together. But I heard her singing under the water in the pool. She was far away, like a tickling in my ear. Sigun closed her eyes for a moment. I'm learning to swim so I can be with her, Eric added calmly. What would a good mother do? Believe him or tell him it can't be real? Her own chest was pinched with longing to hear Astrid, to see her. Sigun imagined Astrid as a creature sewn together from the ocean itself. Eyes of sea glass, fingers made from crab legs, a heart of blood-red coral. She could not bring herself to be terrified of such a daughter, even if such a daughter would have cause to be angry and jealous of the living. Astrid, manifested or imagined, 
had not hurt Eric after all. It was Sigun who had been the danger to him, who had failed to keep her eyes open, as she had once failed Astrid. On Saturday, Sigun, Tom, and Eric drove to the northern edge of the Olympic Peninsula and hiked down through the evergreen trees until they reached Dungeness Spit, a long sandy arm curling out into the water towards Victoria. They met another family with a boy and a girl close to Eric's age, and the children began playing. Soon they were sharing buckets and filling them with wet sand to build a sandcastle. Sigun knelt down beside them. Do you want me to teach you a finished spell for making sandcastles? My grandmother taught it to me. Yes, the girl replied, clapping her sandy hands together. Sigun glanced quickly at the girl's parents. One never knew who would be disturbed by these harmless little things, but they were talking animatedly to Tom, oblivious. Sigun helped the children tip their full buckets over. She began to tap on the bottom of a bucket with a tiny shovel, and the children mimicked her, chanting, Alla tu le kaku, tu le kaku. It was an order. Don't become a bad cake, become a good cake. They smacked the buckets in rhythm to the rhyme and, laughing, carefully lifted them to find perfect, neat sand cakes standing proudly below. Sigun glanced up at the boy's parents, but their mother was smiling, charmed. The children eagerly set about filling their buckets again. Eric ran towards the surf to gather water, and Sigun followed. She thought of her grandmother's charm for entering the water, but she held her tongue back, kept her lips from whispering it just as she restrained her hand from tossing the smooth granite stone she was grasping in her palm. It was all too easy to get attached to little rituals, comforting bulwarks against the tides of fate. Looking at Eric playing joyfully at the edge of the waves, Sigun wondered if there wasn't something cruel about ordering a creature out of the water and removing something from its element without its consent. Anyway, she had never told Tom about the charm. He'd never heard her say it. She glanced back at Tom, who was still speaking with the other family. The afternoon gilded his dark hair with bronze. He looked happy at a distance, painted gold by the sun, washed by the sea wind, apart from her. Free. Sigun knew her loss, her worry, her sorrow, were not hers alone. And yet, somehow the labor of keeping Eric alive felt more hers, however imperfect her skill at it. Sigun looked back at Eric. Then, just in time to see him being pulled underwater, black tentacles twisting about his legs. Eric! She leapt across the sinking sand, the tide pulling at her feet. He was completely under the water now. He hadn't come back up. She could see the bright white of his striped sun shirt as he was being pulled away from her, gliding west into the ocean. She lunged for him and, grabbing him around the waist, dragged him up into the air. He was too shocked to cry or even take a breath. Help! Tom! Sigun screamed, but Tom was already running towards her. Long, thick, rubbery strands of kelp wound around Eric. They were still pulling on his little legs as the heavy ball of kelp root rolled away on a receding wave. Sigun tore at the kelp and it tangled around her own legs. You cannot have him! Sigun growled at it, weeping with fury. Sigun! Tom said sharply, as if he had said her name many times without her hearing. He was holding Eric now, curled against his shoulder. Sigun hurled the mass of kelp roots away, far into the tide. When she turned back to Tom, he was looking at her intently over Eric's shoulder, 
and she could see him absorbing her words, the madness of them. She looked down, abashed. A piece of kelp was still trailing from her hand, its large floating bulb filled with gases the alga had breathed into it. Nereocystis lutkiana, mermaid's bladder. She dropped it into the water as if it had scalded her hand. On Monday, Sigun drove Eric to his pretty little preschool in the forest for the first day of school. As she watched him, he hesitated on the threshold and looked back over his shoulder, a grave look on his face. But then he turned away to greet his teacher, and she escaped. All summer she had been waiting for this moment, when she was no longer responsible for him, when she was alone. Other parents were celebrating by going out for coffee or rushing back to work. Sigun had a swimsuit on, hidden under her pants in an old fleece jacket. She drove home under a gray sky heavy with clouds and, after grabbing her bicycle, pedaled down the street toward the steep, paved path that would take her through the seaside park to a remote little beach. This path was why they had chosen the house, but she had learned after moving in that a boy, out on a lark one night, had died when his bicycle had sped off of it and over the cliff to the park below. Many parents moved to the island for safety, but perfect safety is impossible. Down the treacherous path she flew, past the ruined wharf where the cormorant stood sentry as usual, brown-black and iridescent as an oil slick. When she reached the little beach, she did not use Tuliki's charm. Her whole purpose was to meet whatever was in the water. Sigun left her things on the shore and waded through the muddy shallows. Peach-colored bloodworms fled in frantic fringed spirals from her giant feet until it was finally deep enough to swim. The water was unbearably cold, but as she began to swim, she could no longer feel it. Just the pleasure of floating in the water. The weightlessness. The grace that always came to her there. She swam with long strokes out into the channel and let herself feel all of it. The longing. The grief. The anger. If some part of her daughter were there, in the dark water, lost, suspended in the old boundary between worlds, alone, vengeful even, Sigun would find her. I love you, my daughter. Come to me. Whatever you need, take it from me. After Eric was born, Sigun had been rushed to an operating theater by yelling doctors with shaking hands. They had tried one last time to pull Astrid out from where she had been curled beneath Sigun's heart. Sigun could feel her panicked struggle against the grasping hands before Astrid went horribly still inside her. Later, Astrid had been wheeled past Sigun, one small, perfect, plump hand lifted, waving from the bouncing speed of the trolley. For days they had not let Sigun touch her. She is sleeping, they had said. She is in too much pain, they had said. Her legs had been dark with bruises. Sigun had nursed skinny, wizened Eric constantly, but she had struggled to express her scant, rich first milk into a tiny plastic cup for Astrid. The night nurse had thrown it away. It had blood in it, she had said, as if Sigun's painful effort had spoiled the colostrum. As if a drop of her blood could contaminate what was part of her own body, her cells, her antibodies, the dissolved proteins of her tissue. Wake me. Wake me when she is awake, even in the middle of the night, Sigun had begged. But the night nurse never had. 
Sigun could understand Astrid's rage because she was still full of it. Sigun's body drifted, floating like dead wood in the channel. She had stopped shivering and her breathing slowed, as had the blood in her veins, the beat of her heart. If she drifted far enough, she would be in the path of the fast ferry to Bremerton, but she didn't lift her head to look. Worse than the rage was the guilt. Once, when she was taking Eric to an appointment at the children's hospital, she could not help noticing the many sets of twins lurking in the waiting rooms and elevators. Twins with reconstructed skulls. Twins with parents gray as ghosts. Twins with tiny arms bandaged from where blood had been drawn from their little veins. Their mother weeping over them as she nursed them. Sigun had not been jealous. She had thought, I am lucky. Even now, the guilt engulfed her, that she could feel, even for a moment, such a horrible loss to be a blessing. She thought of the ancient tales in which women leave their babies in baskets to drift on the water, or fathers abandon twins on the banks of rivers to be nursed by wolves. What if she was like them? What if she could have done more? How could Astrid ever forgive her? I love you, my daughter. Can't you feel it? Come to me. Come for me. Take what you need from me. Devour me. I loved you. I love you still. Sigun felt something then, surrounding her. A longing that was hers, but not hers alone. A question. Her eyes were closed and she rested her weight on the moving sea. She nestled this presence closely to her chest. This was how it should have been. A child born in water and held over her bursting heart. She held the feeling of it, like a sea otter holds her child fast to her belly, floating on the surface of the ocean. Just as Sigun became fearful of its end, hungry to keep it, the sense of deep communion began to release her, to leave her, to dissolve in the cold current of this channel, into the sea dark with pollution and stormwater and life. Part of Astrid was alive, after all, swimming inside Sigun's own body. Astrid's cells would live inside Sigun's blood for years, as Eric's would. To become pregnant is to become a chimera, no longer made only of yourself. Across the channel, the sea lions were trumpeting again. The water was noisy with life. The sea was our first mother, and we are still made of it. Suspended in the water and part of it, Sigun imagined she was a shapeshifter, a dragon. She was Charybdis, daughter of a sea god, a maelstrom that could capsize her family in her discontent, her anger, her sorrow, her desire. It wasn't Astrid, but she herself who was the monster. It would be easy for what was left of them to be torn apart like a brittle wooden ship into so much flotsam and jetsam, broken and scattered. It was a terrible responsibility to keep them all afloat, to keep them safe from the furious currents inside her. A responsibility, an ability, a power that was hers alone. She would honor it. To withstand the thirsty cyclone inside her, to not allow it to swallow them up, to withstand it and to live, that would be a worthy feat of honor, a battle deserving of glory, if only in Sigun's own heart. But Sigun had been drifting dangerously long. Her dark hair trailed out behind her in the water like the swirls of a fractal, 
Her skin was blue with cold. The sun was somewhere up above, blanketed by the wet gray clouds. She twisted onto her belly to swim back, her eyes open wide in the dim water, but she couldn't make out the shore, and she couldn't quite feel her arms or her feet. It was as if they had vanished and she had been transformed into a salmon, silver-cheeked, bound to live forever in the watery underworld. She felt it before she saw it, something large and fast swimming towards her beneath the slow current of the channel. Here, after all, was the sea come to claim her, Sigun thought, but her blood was so cold, her heart so slow, that she could not rise in panic. She closed her eyes instead. Only when arms wrapped around her did she realize the animal swimming towards her had not been a whale or a seal or a shark, but a man, who rolled her onto her back and lifted her head out of the water. She was pressed by the gentle waves against his body, his black wetsuit as slick and velvety as sealskin. He pushed his diving mask up into his silver hair. Mr. Medahinen. She noticed that his eyes were not actually green, but a cold storm gray the pupils rimmed with a halo of gold, like the last glimmer of the sun on the crest of a winter sea. Sigun, you are alive. It came across not as a question or a statement even, but a stern command. His deep voice shivered across the calm water. When she made no move to escape, he embraced her, one arm curled beneath her knees and the other wrapped around her chest right below her left breast, holding her to his chest. As they reached shallow water, he picked her up out of the water easily and carried her as if she were still weightless, despite the awkward neoprene mittens that hid his hands, the flippers on his feet, which slapped in the shallow water of the muddy beach. Yes, I am. I am alive. Thank you, Sigun said. Or she thought she said. Her lips were still blue with cold. She was filled with gratitude and she felt as if she could have left her forehead on his shoulder forever. But it wasn't only solace she felt. She wriggled from his arms like a fish and stood, towering over him. He stood very still, his chin up as he contemplated her. There was a quality to his stillness that was transfixing. His attention was so focused on her that Sigun felt heat flood her cheeks. She was blushing and she was so surprised to feel it, she found it so delightfully mortifying that she had to stifle a chuckle of mirth. Instead, she lowered her eyes in an attempt to appear demure, remembering her grandmother's rules of etiquette when encountering strange creatures in the forest, unsettling men in parks, animals rising out of wild water, to be respectful and polite, to move away quickly. I could help you. His voice is quiet now, a low whisper. To learn to swim in this water, if you want. Not today, but thank you, Mr. Medahinen. Her cheeks flaming, she risked one last fleeting look at his face and was almost sure she saw a flicker of expression there, that his eyes were crinkled at the edges with amusement, that the golden rings around his dilated pupils glowed. Sigun turned, hurriedly towards her bicycle, careful not to chance even a glance over her shoulder. Her skin was still blue with cold, but she felt remarkably revived. When she finally reached it, Sigun leapt onto her bicycle and raced back through the park, past the old wharf, now empty of cormorants except for the one streaked red with blood.
vanquished below the talons of a bald eagle that was piercing the midday with its incongruously beautiful cry. She hurtled up the treacherous path, pedaling ferociously, her blood, Astrid's blood, Eric's blood, heating again, her lungs burning, to where her house perched precariously on the steep hillside above the water. Grief is not something that can be nailed in a wooden box and buried, and neither is desire. They ebb and flow like the tide. One has to learn to navigate them. There is no perfect closure, and to believe in one would be a perilous delusion, a mirage, like an island of perfect safety, a sea without monsters. She sped, cutting off from the paved road and bouncing down the shortcut through the woods where blackberry branches stretched out across a dirt path with monstrous, spiny arms that lashed her bare skin and pinged against the spokes of her furiously spinning wheels. The air was heavy with the sweet ferment of August berries as Sigun burst out of the forest onto her ordinary, paved street lined with houses. As she put her hand on the door latch, it opened from within, and Tom was standing on the threshold. I left the office early. I wanted to go with you to pick up Eric. His eyes wandered over her, taking in her red cheeks and the cold blue skin of her arms, the seaweed in her hair, the hermit crab clinging, terrified to her swimsuit, which was all she was wearing. She had left her clothes at the beach. He lifted a hand out towards her, gently removing the hermit crab and placing it aside. She raised her eyes to his face, unsure of what she would find there. At some point, Sigun had lost her confidence that Tom could know her and still love her, let alone want her as she stood now, her hair beribboned with seaweed, her arms red with scratches and tiny drops of blood from the pricks of the blackberry brambles. Sigun thought suddenly of what must have been the exact moment she had fallen in love with him. It was soon after they had met and she had taken him out sailing in one of her father's boats. Tom hadn't grown up around the water, and he was awkward in a boat. She should have been careful with him, but she was overjoyed to be out on the sea again. The wind was strong that day and had picked up even further to a fierce gale. Sigun hadn't been able to hold back, and she had been laughing as they ran with the wind, the spray of the water hitting her young, grinning face. She had looked back at him in her wild joy, suddenly unsure of what she would find. He was seeing her in her element, unrestrained in all her terrible power and glory. But he met her eyes, not with terror or anger, but admiration. He had trusted her, putting his life in her hands as they flew over the water. Now, Tom smiled down at her from the front step, with wary affection and longing in his eyes. You look like yourself again, he said. I feel alive again, Sigun said, and she found herself grinning back at him. She took his warm, dry hand in her cold, salty one and placed it over the cool, damp skin above her heart. I don't want to be late to pick up Eric, she said, but I need to warm up before we go. Then Tom was pulling her through the door, and Sigun was pushing the door shut. They were laughing as they raced up the stairs, her long arm wrapped around his and their hands tangled together. Sigun's skin tingled almost painfully as her heated blood flowed into the last edges of her body, flushed to the tips of her fingers. She could feel everything again, and the return of feeling was a stinging effervescence. She was a pulsing medusa, venomous, bioluminescent, ephemeral. 
Sigun could feel in that moment, haunted and monstrous though she might be, not only the anguish of living, but also the joy and pleasure of it. She could feel the triumph and the fragility of it, the grace and good fortune of being there, terribly, magnificently alive. That was Astrid Underwater by J.J. Eskelin. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, we'd love it if you'd leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or whatever platform you listen to us on. Or, better yet, share the magazine and podcast with a friend. If you'd like to listen to more speculative fiction, visit us online at magazine.metaphoricist.com or on Twitter at metaphoricistmag.com.